Hello and welcome to the Marvels of Science, a new podcast about the science and tech of the Marvel Cinematic Universe hosted by me, Dave Reinersman. All your favorite heroes and villains from Black Panther and Killmonger to Captain America and Ulysses Claw. Speaking of what these four have in common, today's topic is vibranium, the fictional material that makes up Captain America's shield and Black Panther's suit, among other things. Here with me to bounce around some ideas is Suveen Mathadu, our science expert today, chair of and professor in the Materials Science and Engineering program at UC Riverside and principal investigator, which is a great title, of the Mathadu Research Group. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Suveen. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. And our color commentator is Lauren Bland, a good friend of mine right here in D.C. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks. Happy to be here. And today we're talking all things vibranium. Well, not all things, because Wakanda also somehow uses the mystery metal from space to power their, you know, secret space age civilization and give certain people superpowers by eating flowers. So let's stick to physical applications for now. In the intro to Black Panther, we learn... Millions of years ago, a meteorite made of vibranium struck the continent of Africa, affecting the plant life around it. And when the time of men came, five tribes settled on it and called it Wakanda. Which, just to be on the safe side, I would like to point out is also a fictional country. Uh, up until the first mention of Wakanda in the MCU, Wakanda, Wakanda. We are led to believe that the entire world supply of vibranium has been turned into Captain America's shield. That raises a question right there. I remember a fact saying that all the gold we ever mined would not quite fill two Olympic swimming pools. Savine, do you know of any materials of which we only have such a small amount? No. No, even when we even when we consider materials that are rare or hard to extract. The rarest materials are the ones that we make in super colliders and they disappear in a fraction of a second. But the things that are stable, we have relatively large amounts of these materials um, to be to use for whatever we need to. Doesn't mean that we have an endless supply, but uh, there's nothing that's as rare as vibranium is purported to be in the MCU. We're told by Howard, Tony Stark's dad, that vibranium is it's stronger than steel and a third the weight. It's completely vibration absorbent. I, I don't know what that means, vibration absorbent. That seems like that's not a thing. Is that a thing? I mean, the kinetic energy from an impact has to go somewhere, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, so when kinetic energy interacts with an object, there's a variety of different ways that the energy can be dissipated. Uh, one of them can be through sound. The other is through thermal energy or vibration of the atoms that are in the material. Some is through what's called damping, which is also the vibration of the atoms. And you can even get phenomena uh, such as something called sonoluminescence. So this was illustrated in the first Avengers movie when Thor hit Captain America's shield and there was a big flash of light. which is also an indicator of energy being dissipated. Plastic deformation or permanent deformation also indicates that you're, you're absorbing some energy. 
but the absorbing of all energy would never result in a sound. And that was one of the most annoying things uh, in that Captain America scene for me when Agent Carter shoots the shield and it makes pinging sounds and resonates, uh, which immediately indicates that it's not a a material that can absorb all energy. Otherwise, there would be no sound whatsoever. In truth, the material demonstrates both an infinite ability to absorb energy and an infinite ability to channel energy. So let me give you an example. If somebody is shooting munitions or bullets at Captain America's shield and he's not moving and those bullets are dropping off all around him after they hit it, that's indicative that the shield is somehow absorbing that energy into its lattice. Maybe it's heating up. It doesn't often deform, but there's a few cases where you see it deform. In that case, all of the energy is being stored in the material itself, almost like a car bumper. When you hit a car bumper, the foam compression and deformation stores the energy of the impact. But then there's other scenes where Captain America throws his shield and it bounces off of five things before it comes back to him. If it was truly absorbing all of that energy, it would hit the first object and drop. You're hitting future questions. That's That confused me so much. If it absorbs the vibration, then it would absorb its own vibration hitting something else. Because, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's no difference between object A hitting object B or object B hitting object A, right? Whichever one is stationary, the force that's transferred is the same, right? That is correct. That's, that's Newton's laws. Also, he throws it at some people a lot. It seems like if it were actually vibration absorbent, and he threw it at a person, they wouldn't feel anything. The shield itself would absorb all of that kinetic energy and, again, just flop to the ground, and the person would be pretty confused, I suppose, but not exactly incapacitated in the way he's probably hoping. Mm, but but momentum is different. Okay. So the impact felt by the object is, is from the shield carrying momentum. That momentum doesn't directly correlate to the energy being absorbed. So... The energy is, is not dependent on the rate, but the momentum is. So I can put a, a large object on top of you and subject you to the same kinetic energy at a very low velocity as a fast-thrown shield. But the momentum effects are completely different than the, the other energy effects. This reminds me of, okay, Lauren, here's one for you. You're directing a movie. You got a bad guy in the Old West, let's say, and he's standing in front of a big plate glass window shooting at the good guy. The good guy gets him first shoots him what happens to the bad guy oh he totally falls through that window he flies backwards yes shoots up off his feet through the glass which um savine if you can jump in with some uh, physics correction when people are hit with bullets do they shoot up into the air it has to be a really big bullet <laughs> I suppose yeah if it's if the, if the bullet's that big it's probably going through them Oh, instead of knocking them back. Still going to hurt, I suppose. I mean, I guess mission accomplished, but it's probably more of a cannonball at that point. Yeah. Lauren, if you got your hands on, I don't know how much the shield weighs, let's say 30 pounds, a 30 pound hunk of completely vibration absorbent metal, and you could make something out of it, assuming you're not going to make a shield. The most versatile substance on the planet. And they used it to make a frisbee. Probably uh, like a roller coaster car or something, so that you're not bouncing almost out of the seat belt every single time. This sounds like a very 
specific gripe you have with roller coasters. <laughs> I didn't think it was, but that's what popped into my mind. Who knew? Howard Stark hands you a hunk of metal and says, hey, we found this. This is all of it. And you're like, I have just the pet peeve for this. You know when you're on a roller coaster and you're bouncing around? It drives me crazy. I need a fix. <laughs> I think my problem is I don't really, I don't really have issues with vibrations, or at least I don't know that I do. I suppose along those lines, though, if you could make like the, a perfect car suspension... Ooh. I suppose like a car's suspension overall, the idea is it dampens road vibrations through a series of leaves and leafs and springs and things. But if all of those were made out of, well, what is essentially a magic piece of metal, I suppose that'd be a better suspension system. Unless you're a monster truck, then less right. fun. Yeah, you don't want that. Right. You want the bouncing, I suppose. Yes. Or if you want to feel the road. Right, yeah. Mm. If you if you're a high end sports car, yeah, you're right. I remember my dad would sometimes say about a high end car, like, "Oh, you drive over a dime in that thing, you can feel it." And I would be confused about why you would want to, but he knew a lot more about cars than I do. You mentioned that if this material could do what it says and it were smacked with something hard, it would then be able to absorb that material. You talked about it in terms of bumpers, but we see this vibration absorbing ability again in Black Panther. When Shuri, who is King T'Challa's sister and Wakanda's resident super scientist, every movie super scientist, by the way, is some sort of super generalist. She says that the Black Panther suit absorbs the kinetic energy of a strike and then holds it in place for later redistribution. If you were to strike it that same spot again, you get punched back with the same force of the first punch. The nanites absorb the kinetic energy and hold it in place for redistribution. Just checking real quick, that's um, that's not going to happen, right, Savine? It never happens ideally. So there's always sources where energy is lost. But there are materials that can store energy and re-release them in different forms. Really? There are. So one of the analogies that I'll start with is a material called a supercapacitor. So if you think of conventional batteries... If you have a conventional rechargeable battery, like the battery on your cell phone, it takes a long time to charge it, and then it releases small amounts of energy over a long period of time. Uh, But then it takes a long time to recharge. A capacitor on the other end is uh, a type of battery that charges quickly, but releases all of its energy at one time. And a supercapacitor is a new type of material. These can be made with novel 2D materials or graphene that have the ability to be charged quickly, but then also release that energy over a long period of time. So charging it with a burst and then releasing the energy over over a much longer period of time. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah, it seems like the holy grail for cell phone battery technology is I, I, I plug my phone in for 10 seconds and then carry it with me for a day. Yeah, it's real and, and it's coming. You know, it's, it's something that's imminent in the future for, for battery technologies. So Captain America's shield, I've always pictured to be a type of supercapacitor. Anything that hits it, any energy that it absorbs is kind of like charging of the battery. It stores energy in the shield through some mysterious mechanism that we don't know yet. But there's <laughs> there's a lot of energy stored in the bonds of even mundane materials, hence nuclear power. So if this energy is stored in some way in, in the lattice structure of the material, but then can be released on demand, like a supercapacitor, 
then it can behave in the, in the same way that Shuri proposes. So there's uh, research that's going on in this space in the material science community on materials called uh, shape memory alloys, where when you deform a material, it puts out a charge. And so there's been discussions of putting this in soldiers' boots or backpacks. So just the oscillating movements of them walking around are enough to charge small devices. There's even discussions of deforming viruses like M13 viruses because the head and tail have different polarities. When you squeeze it, you release a small charge um, that could be used to power a calculator or, or a small device. And so there is a precedent for being able to store energy and then release it. Another example is regenerative braking in electric vehicles. So you're taking the kinetic energy of slowing down the momentum of the vehicle, and you're taking that, you're putting it into a battery cell, and then it's being given back to you in the form of power. So in that specific scene, there's very little or no energy loss, and I, I guess that's where the the problem lies is we don't have any materials that can absorb 100% of the energy given off by something and then return all of that back. Even our best processes for engines and, and devices may give back 15 to 20% of the energy that's stored. And then the rest is lost due to heat, sound, other energy loss mechanisms. Well, what they say is doing it in the suit is nanites, which I don't know much about. I have a nanotechnology professor on tap to talk about that and also Tony's future suits as they get farther and farther away from metal. But this might be a quick thing you can't answer briefly. Briefly, what is a nanite? <laughs> uh, I'll stay apolitical. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. The nanite is, a, is this uh, concept or an idea that we can make devices or robots that are small enough to live inside our body repair blood cells, cure diseases, and that they're nanoscaled, so they could be injected into you with uh, a needle. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, you know what? Maybe we're just going to cut that part out. Maybe we don't need to... <laughs> we don't... <laughs> but I... I, I, you know, I certainly don't believe that we're all being turned into 5G antennas, right? But that's... Uh, <laughs> you're wandering into, into QAnon territory. Uh, by asking me that question. Nanites are nanites are, are complete nonsense, but they were almost like uh, the beginning of the pop culture understanding of nanotechnology amongst the first in, in publications and books. So as yet theoretical objects. Yeah. Okay. Lauren, how do you think your life would change if you had Black Panther's suit? Assuming you wouldn't immediately become a superhero. I'd definitely have to get a fabulous pair of black boots to go with that suit. But after that, me being so clumsy would be less of an issue, although those around me could be in danger because when I knocked into something the same in the same place, things would go bouncing off of me, I suppose. That's a good point. If you tripped and fell on something and the suit absorbed that vibrational energy, you would be unharmed. But then the next time you did or someone bumped into you, you'd knock them across the room. Um, graphene is one of those sci-fi buzzwords that pops up a lot just to solve problems if you want to show that at least somebody on your in your writer's room was on wikipedia for half an hour before you wrote a scene but it also seems in the real world to get an article written about it once a month with some pretty bold promises so is this like science journalism jumping way ahead of the science or 
Should we get excited about graphene? I think there's there's plenty of reason to get excited about graphene and other 2D materials, other two-dimensional materials that are going to be able to do things that, that graphene can't. There's already some, some things that are being made out of graphene, uh, including monitors and screens, even headphones, you know, the ability to have high fidelity headphones using a graphene layer to transmit the sound. There's a lot of potential for it, but at this stage of time, there's issues in development, there's issues in cost, and then the momentum of an industry that may not necessarily need graphene to do what it wants. There's no graphene plants that are getting built across the country to make a graphene plane or a graphene toilet or a graphene telephone. I still firmly believe that the roots of conventional material science still favor materials that we still have a lot of opportunity to squeeze out uh, potential new devices and new products before we claim to make everything out of graphene. When you talk about current materials that, as you say, we can sort of squeeze more use out of, is there anything we've got that's close to vibranium, accepting the whole power of civilization slash superpowers part? It's It's a question I get frequently asked. And the answer that I have is so mundane, but it, it is the closest to vibranium. And okay. it's steel. It's, it's steel. The Iron Age has been something that's been progressing for 100 years, hundreds of years, I should say. And our major society was built on steel and iron alloy development. Whether we consider our buildings, whether we consider our healthcare, whether we consider communications, whether we consider defense, whether we consider electronics, almost every product that we have has in some way been enabled by novel combinations of iron and a little bit of carbon and a handful of other elements that you may add in to modify the properties in this space. I mean, if you look around you, there's probably dozens of things that are made out of iron-based materials. And there's still a lot that can be squeezed out by making iron stronger. If we can make it stronger, we can use less of it and make our devices and vehicles lighter. If we can control the microstructure in certain ways, we can allow it to be conductive. Even simple things like magnets that are used in electric vehicles are iron-silicon materials iron silicon soft magnets that can be manipulated in ways to be very, very small and compact and therefore make smaller motors for electric vehicles. So it's 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 super boring, but but the truth is is that that little bit of pixie dust into iron allows us to do so much. And 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 vibranium, the way that it's depicted in, in the comics and in the movies, is something that's pretty ubiquitous. It's uh it's in their transportation, it's in their defense, it's in their clothing, it's in it's in everything. And the closest thing we have to that right now is just uh, iron-based materials and steels. That it reminds me, there's this, I don't know if it's a myth or not, but it goes around the internet, so I'm sure it's true, about somebody Scandinavian, usually Vikings, where they would infuse bones, sometimes of enemies or fallen comrades, sometimes they say just animals, blacksmiths of the era would infuse bones into their iron. The The metal would be stronger because they would believe it had held the spirit of whatever bone it was. And in fact, they were making steel by putting carbon into the iron. Have you heard this? And do you think there's any truth to this? Or is this just the internet trying to be poetic? 
I mean, that legend has been around for quite some time, uh, both in uh, Scandinavian communities or in Japanese communities, where they'll say that the sword embodies the spirit of the person whose bones were used to, to make the material. But at a, at a very simple level, steel is iron with just a very, very, very tiny amount of carbon. And anything organic, if uh, you burn it or let it sit around long enough, is going to revert back to carbon. It's what our fossil fuels are made out of. It's what our polymers are made out of and plastics are made out of. Basically, anything organic that you burn long enough will revert back to carbon because we're carbon-based life forms. So any form of carbon that you introduce into iron in the process of steel making or sword making or armor making is going to allow that material to become much, 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 much stronger. Now, could that come from bones? Hypothetically, yes, but it could come from, uh, you know, burning a pile of spinach too. <laughs> that's that's a different version of Popeye, I think, than Popeye forged a sword with a burning pile of spinach. Well, spinach is high in iron and it's high in carbon. You know, you were you you talked about something at the beginning a little bit. I want to make a quick comment about it, and that was sure. the fact that when they ate the plants, that it gave them the powers of the vibranium. Allow the hardship up to restore the powers of the Black Panther. One of the more interesting aspects of soil science and material science is genetically engineering plants that are made to pull specific toxins and metallic elements out of the soil more quickly than you could actually process and chemically extract out those poisonous elements from the soil. We can we can remove a lot of toxic things from soil just by engineering plants that are able to basically leach them out of the ground. Uh, and then by pulling out the plants, you get rid of your toxic elements. So it's not it's not abnormal for elements that are in the soil to show up in the plants and the organic matter that's growing in those areas. I suppose the difference would be eating one of these plants that has pulled toxins out of the ground would maybe do the opposite of superpowers. But the plant part, perfectly realistic. Yeah, I can't think of any plant that you would eat that would give you superpowers except maybe Popeye. <laughs> Before we get to... Wrapping up, the next material science word I'd love to get a definition on, and sorry to use you like material science Wikipedia, Suveen, but this kept cropping up in my research for this episode. What is a metamaterial? Again, is this a real thing or a theoretical thing or not a thing at all? It's somewhere in between a real thing and a not a real thing. Okay. So what a metamaterial is, is a human design material that can have certain functional properties. And when I say functional, I mean that there's no structural role for what they're supposed to do. One example of a metamaterial that I would I would give you is they have metamaterials where if you direct sound at them, all of that sound will get absorbed based on the geometry of the metamaterial. The, those are audio metamaterials. The fictional invisibility cloak in theory, could be enabled by a metamaterial that would be an optical metamaterial. I know what that is. That's an invisibility cloak. That would absorb or redirect light. So right, you're saying it would do it from its own geometry, not as if it's a powered material, that it's like redirecting the light around itself intentionally. It would just be bouncing in a, what we would consider, I suppose, convenient way around me. Correct. So that I'm invisible. Yeah. Stan Lee actually had, a, he had an interesting observation when... 
Somebody asked him how Hulk's pants are able to stretch out as much as they do. (laughs) He made up this idea that all the materials that were used to make the superhero costumes were made of something called an unstable molecule. And these could become invisible. They could be fire resistant. They could stretch like spandex for Mr. Fantastic. All of the superhero costumes are made out of these metamaterials that he called unstable molecules. So Fantastic Four, the movie, was just teased. Um, When that comes out in 2026 or something, we'll have to see how they explain away their costumes. If they do at all. They're graphing. (laughs) They're all graphing. (laughs) Next up, we have a segment in the show called, hmm, technically, you want to imagine you're pushing up your glasses when you say that. Lauren and I are going to keep quiet as Suveen gives us some more nuance or details or anything you like, basically, even tangentially related to the topic. So this episode is about vibranium, uh, metal in the Marvel universe that many people would see and claim to know about. But if you ask almost anybody else about a depiction of a metal or a sword in any fandom, you're going to run into people who understand the physics of a metallic material based on things like adamantium, things like Uru, what Thor's hammer Mjolnir is made out of, things like Beskar steel in The Mandalorian, things like Valerian steel in uh, the show that we won't name because the last season was horrible, even things like Mithril and The Lord of the Rings. And I think part of the reason that the idea of working with metals resonates with us is because major periods of history have been advanced based on our understanding Understanding and development of metals, in some ways better swords and better shields. So we went from the Stone Age, where people were working with bones and sticks and wood and skins, and somebody accidentally figured out how to make bronze, and they were able to make a better tool, and they were able to make a better sword, and they were able to make a better shield. And that carried forward society and advanced society in many ways until somebody figured out how to make iron. And we entered the Iron Age. And then they were able to make better swords and better shields and better tools. And eventually cars and buildings and helicopters and phones and iWatches and many other things that we have around us. But sword making and the understanding of metals, I think, is in many ways built into our cultural DNA because it affected everybody. It's cross-cultural. It's cross-generational. Everybody somehow resonates with the idea of a sword or a piece of metal that's in their hand. And I think there's something in our generational DNA that tells us this is really, really important to society and really cool. And so it's really fun as a scientist and a researcher to discuss the science of something that almost anybody can connect with because it's so universal across society. And the principles that we take from from sword making, from the making of metals, they all relate to our ability to function as society as well. We have resilience, we have toughness, we have strength, we have hardness. Arnold Schwarzenegger spoke a few days ago about tempering. How if you temper a sword, you make it stronger and stronger and stronger. And sure, there were some flaws in his analysis. But in general, he was using Conan's sword as an analogy for what we're going through right now as a society. And that is yet again another example of taking something that's so simple as a metal sword and using it to connect across a wide group. 
So I really am thankful that I get to get paid to do this and I get paid to talk about it and I get uh, paid to, uh, well, no, I don't get paid to talk to people like you, but it's still fun to do anyways. That's true. You're making me nervous. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share with a few more people how metals have and will continue to change our, our world. I really appreciate that perspective. That's that I'm going to be thinking about that for a week. Lauren, close us out. Do you have any final vibratory thoughts thoughts but i have a burning question shoot what's really thrown me off and this is clearly showing my ignorance in energy and material sciences is how this thing can be generating power for an entire country um and be a material that's armor and nanites and everything else and i'm just curious for that power do you think they are doing something to the material in order to generate the power? Or is the material just absorbing vibrations from the earth and the country above doing whatever it's doing and it's just putting out that power that it's absorbing? Okay, I'll try to I'll try to succinctly answer your question, Lauren. And it, it's not ignorant, and it's something that if the general public had some simple understandings of, they would they would more appreciate the the things around them. When when you have an, an explosion in space, the heaviest elements that can be created in space are iron and nickel, and everything else occurs due to a nuclear reaction. And when we get those materials, we don't get them in the form of a metal. It's not like you're mining and you all of a sudden come around a big chunk of metal. You often come to a piece of earth or a place where that element is mixed in with something else and you have to extract it and you have to turn it into something. And so most of material science is not finding veins of gold or things in the ground. It's finding fundamental elements and then being able to process them in a way that you can turn them into things that are useful. So most people don't know it, but, you know, not too far away from you guys, throwing distance, you have the Washington Monument. And when the Washington Monument was built, the tip of the monument was actually an aluminum tip because aluminum was so rare, so hard to extract. And so over time, we figured out ways of synthesizing and processing materials to let them do things that they haven't been able to do historically. And that's basically the whole field in material science and engineering, is being able to take and make new and different things out of the materials that make up our world. So to go back to your specific question, I'll give you a material that everyone has heard of, but nobody really knows how it's how it's made unless you've been involved in the science or have an understanding of it. That's uranium. So if you think of a nuclear reactor, you think of using refined uranium or purified uranium. It's actually a uranium alloy that they use to be able to cause a nuclear reaction. So there in it of itself, you have a metallic material, a very small amount of material that can power cities in the same way that vibranium could potentially power Wakanda if it was refined or processed in the same way. And in the movie, they actually show those trains going by with a vibranium as they're mining it and they're refining it and they're talking about how unstable it is. That's very similar to the way that you would actually process uranium to be able to use for a nuclear reactor. When that uranium is done, you can actually convert it into things like armor materials. 
So there are tanks that use plates of uranium that have been made out of the spent nuclear material that was used to power the reactors. But all of those involve complex synthesis and processing that people start doing in university labs, and then eventually they move to defense laboratories or energy laboratories. And that's how we end up having so many different things made out of a single material. So it's plausible that we could we could have a material like vibranium that's able to function in so many different capacities with the right amount of knowledge about how to synthesize and process it into the things that we need to make out of it. That was a long answer, but hopefully it answered answered your question. Oh, it definitely did. That was extremely illuminating. So thank you. Okay, that's it for us. I want to be clear as always that I love these movies. Scientific accuracy is not a necessary component for good storytelling. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way. It's just fun to tease them. I want to thank my guests, Sabine Mathadu and Lauren Bland, for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening, and cross your fingers, there's an episode five. Thanks once again to my guests, Lauren Bland and Suveen Mathadu. Their willingness to put themselves out there on this podcast means a lot to me. MCU audio clips were taken from Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Avengers Age of Ultron, Black Panther, and unexpectedly Lost in Space, Popeye, and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and all used entirely without permission. Please don't sue me. The music is a song called On Tiptoe from Purple Planet Music. That song and more royalty-free music can be found at purple-planet.com. And not to brag, but just to clarify for the sake of the credits, all other aspects of the production, including research, writing, and editing, were done by me, Dave Reinersman. Thanks for listening.